Hey listeners, before we jump into this week's episode, I just want to take a second to thank all of you for being part of the podcast's journey over the past six months. It makes me super happy to hear from all of you and watch our audience grow week after week after week. I am committed to helping all of us learn how to work smarter, especially during this crazy, insane time. The best thing you can do to help out the podcast is to tell your friends about the show, shout us out on social media, and if you haven't already, take a quick second to write a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. All right, listeners, now on with the show. I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with Olivier, Tony, and Grammy Award winner Steven Sater. Steven won Tony Awards for Best Book and Best Score, the Grammy Award for Best Musical Show Album, as well as the Olivier Award for Best New Musical for Spring Awakening. His other musicals include Alice by Heart, produced at the National Theatre of London, MCC in New York, and is also a novel from Penguin Random House. The Nightingale, produced at La Jolla Playhouse, Prometheus Bound at ART, and Some Lovers, with music by Burt Bacharach at the Old Globe and the Adirondack Theatre Festival. His plays include Arms on Fire, New York Animals, and a reconceived musical version of Shakespeare's Tempest. Additionally, Stephen works as a poet, screenwriter, and pop lyricist. He's created television projects for HBO, Showtime, FX, NBC, and is currently creating a musical TV series for Amazon. Listeners, I am the biggest fan of Stephen, and I was so excited to talk with him. Of course, I had to ask him about the genesis of Spring Awakening, and I think the lesson to be learned is that if you have an idea for a project, you just need to go for it and make it happen, and shoot for the collaborators that you would dream to work with. They might just say yes, and in Stephen's case, you might win a ton of awards for it. We talked about Leah Michelle, Jonathan Groff, Lily Cooper, and John Gallagher Jr.'s auditions for Spring Awakening and what helped them book the roles that launched their careers. Stephen also has some incredibly helpful advice for auditioning for new work. He talks about what writers could be looking for and some of the conversations that take place when determining who's actually going to get the role. All right, listeners, without further ado, my conversation with the incredibly accomplished and incredibly kind Stephen Sater. I'm so happy that like we're that this is an excuse for me to connect with you and that we're finally kind of connecting and seeing each other, even though I might run into you <laughs> later today on 70th Street or 72nd. Stephen and I realized we are but blocks from each other. In yeah, how would you know? We never. I never go out of my apartment now. I don't know. I'm just. I'm being careful. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I've been in Cape Cod this whole time, and gratefully so, just to be away from New York when it was you know, so high risk, like especially this summer and coming back here, my partner and I thought it was just going to be, you know, between the rioting, the coronavirus, we kind of thought it was going to be like this empty shell of a city. But I'm so surprised to see like, even today I was out on a run with my mask in the park and it was, the city seems to already be kind of coming back a, at least a little or thriving or- oh, I think it is. I really think it is for someone who's been here the whole time. It's really changed dramatically, and it's encouraging how many people are coming back and how much spirit there is to the city. I felt it the last few weeks, and even more so since Labor Day, but it was, I remember these Saturday nights when I, and again, I'm on the Upper West Side, I walk out, and like walking by Lincoln's, it just was a ghost town. Mm -hmm. It was so sad, and I think this is Saturday night in the summer in New York. Yeah. 
And I moved to New York during the summer. And so I always have all these associations with the summer in New York and remembering those years. And it was really heartrending. Um, and it's not now. New York feels like it's back to life. Yeah. Yeah. And I like look at the people on the street and I think, well, I have respect for you. Or there's like something about people who are still in New York that you mm-hmm. you you share something in common. It's true. And they wear masks. New Yorkers wear masks. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it, it's encouraging to see, I think, just if it's any small inclination of the growth and rebuilding. Mm-hmm. Because our, our industry certainly depends on it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about when this all started. You know, my interviews would start with, you know, what are you working on now? What's coming across mm-hmm. your desk? What's, you know, what's your days look like? It's a less... Inter- not less. It's not a less interesting question right now, but it's just kind of harder to answer just because this is, you know, not normally the way that we are or we're living. But I think it's interesting to hear what some people have been up to during this time. You know, there's like no obligation to be up to anything, but it's certainly changed the way that we're all relating and, and doing things. So I guess maybe my question is, what were you up to in March when this all kind of just sidelined us and then maybe what are you up to these days uh in your lovely apartment well i will say this um you know despite the strangeness and sadness and heartache and the outrage of you know the state of our country right now and then the state of this pandemic for me and i'm aware of the writer privilege in this but for me it's been a tremendously productive time it really has. I've um, I do well with quiet and solitude. I had um, like a long hospitalization in my early twenties, and you know I had a, had an accident, and um, I don't know. I've kind of learned to let the world go away, almost almost to a fault. And um, I've just gone to that place. I've been in gear. I've been focused. I I write on the floor. I write scrawled on the floor with pencils, and you should see my living room right now. It's just books and papers and pads and pencils. And I've been, I work crazy schedule. I stay up too late and I wake up too late. Or I stay up late. I'm nocturnal by nature. But I'm really doing a lot, Robbie. When this began, I was doing a lot. But I was more, I have a kind of bicoastal life and I was in the midst of this. It's a potential original musical series. It's a non-binary love story. And um, I had been in LA a lot for that. And I remember my producer, I was in her home and she put a mask on me and actually handed me gloves and said, you're wearing these gloves, you're getting on a plane. And the plan was I was coming back. It was to meet Bob Greenblatt. It was at HBO Max at the time, like a week later. And I've, I've met him, but I was like, we were going in to talk about this project <laughs> and I never returned, you know, and then the world, that was when the, you know, everything changed. And so since then I've really been in my apartment. I'm very fortunate because I have, you know, my mentors are writers and I have so many books. I, you should see my apartment. It's crazy. So I've been here with my books and I have so much I've worked on. I have four musicals. I've done major revision on one musical, my musical with Burt Backrack. Um, it's his first original score since Promises, Promises. It's something we've been working on called Some Lovers. And I had notes that I hadn't been, had time to look at for over two years since we did it up in the Adirondacks. Um, and I did this major overhaul of it. Wow. And um, that was one of my socially distanced meetings was with our director, Josh Rhodes. And we um, were about to do like a Zoom reading. So I worked on those, but I also, I'm fortunate I have two movie projects right now. 
both musicals. One of them we set up before the pandemic, one of them during. And we had a bidding war. And I was crazy on all these Zoom meetings. And I was um, working on it, doing massive amount of writing. So now that movie is moving forward. They both are, but this one is moving very quickly. And um, I'm caught up with that. And then I have also, and this is really where I'm mostly living is within my novel. I have a novel, like an adult novel that I've been working on for a long time. First worked on it in the 90s, and then I didn't work on it for a long time. And then 2016 or 17, I looked, I read it through for the first time in years. And I thought, oh, I could just die and this would be rubbish. Or I could like, get into this and try and make something out of this. So I have. And then... Again, it would be like I'd have three months to really work on it, and then I have to put it aside for a year and two months because I, you know, I just had too many projects going on. And so I had done that repeatedly. And when my um, the novel of Alice by Heart came out, I had promised my book agent I would try and get, you know I told her about this adult novel and I would try and get it done. And I had I had really worked on, it, but there I just have well, you know, this has been the gift of this for me mm-hmm. that I've had so much time to just kind of live in the world of this book. And while there, bring all my writer, my my writer mentors with me. So it's been a fertile period for me. And the musical version of Alice by Heart, mm-hmm. did the, the idea for the book came first and then the musical? Or did you always know it was going to be? No, it began as a musical. Okay. When we were, when we were working on um, Spring Awakening, there were two people. One was my now agent at the time we were meeting we had like our first meeting it was five hours and he proposed he said you know i think it was kind of agenty it was sort of like okay you and duncan have worked on this unusual piece based on a work of imaginative literature is that piece of imaginative literature that people have actually heard of and so then it was like you know alice i think alice's adventures in wonderland so he proposed it and then my costume designer on spring awakening with whom i was really close susan hilferty also talked to me about it and so it was an idea I had. When was this? When did I start it? It's been, it was, I think it was nine, must have been like 2011 or something. I always thought you couldn't really do Alice as a musical because there's no beginning in it and no beginning, middle and end to the book. It's just kind of all middle, you know, <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a concept for beginning and a concept for, there's no end. So she just goes down and has all these phantasmagorical kind of encounters with these characters who come and go and have no development. They just have a scene. And so I was first working on with Duncan as a music project. It was going to be a set of music videos. We're talking to all these super cool video directors. And we were, you know, based like a song for the magic carpet ride of each chapter. And then um, I went to see this group of 15-year-olds called Theater Geeks. They did this night of songs called I Believe. One of my writing partners, Jesse Nelson, on a on a couple of movies, had invited me because her daughter was in it, and it was Ben Platt and Beanie Feldstein and Molly Gordon. It was all these amazing kids singing Spring Awakening songs, and I had brought Leah Michelle as my guest, uh-huh. and I was sitting with Leah, who was then filming Glee, though it hadn't wasn't yet on the air, but it had been picked up and gone from pilot to pickup, and. I was looking at Leah and I was looking at Molly and Ben and I thought, wow, this was Leah's age when I met her. She was 14, Mm -hmm. just turned 14. And I thought, oh, this Alice could be about how we leave childhood behind. And it just was my way in. Mm -hmm. And then that became how 
you know, one of the ways of that is death. One of the ways of that is meeting the horrors of the world. You know, our Alice has said in World War II, that took a while to figure out. But, um, but so it, it definitely began as a musical. And it began working with those kids, Darren, Chris. We had this amazing cast that we worked with, all of whom were just these 15, 16-year-old kids at that time. Wow. Skyler worked on it for a while. Jack Quaid, you know who he is? He's, he's an amazing actor. Mm-hmm. He, he was in it. He was the first Mad Hatter. Beanie was, you know, the Queen of Hearts. Ben was the White Rabbit. Wow. We developed it for him. But anyway, it began as a play, a musical. And at some point in the development of it, my producer, Kurt Deutsch, is when we had a producer, which we didn't for a long time, which, by the way, is something when you work on, you can win a lot of Tony Awards and acclaim, but if you don't have a brand name musical, it's hard. Or stars, it's hard to get money. It's hard to get people behind it. Mm-hmm. Producers inaugurate so many musicals now. And, you know, some of those are tied to movie studios. And I always wanted to do my own stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's it's hard. Anyway, it was a long journey getting the show on. Endlessly grateful to MCC. But um, at some point, Kurt Deutsch said, you know, it would be great to have a book that we could promote this musical with. And, you know, even a picture book. And it brought back to me... Um, the opening of the Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, where it says, what, what was the good of a book without pictures or conversations? And I thought, oh, I could make a book out of books of what all these books have meant to me. How, you know, and these repeated like sickness as a kid and then hospitalization, like books have changed my life. Mm-hmm. So it was meant as an homage to books. So the book became a kind of mosaic of all these great books. And, um, and it was a book about how a book gets you through quarantine. That's what the book's about. Yeah. So that became the novel. Exciting. <laughs> yeah. Exciting. You have this amazing relationship with your collaborator, Duncan Sheik. And I mean, it's just uh, unbelievable. Obviously, the first thing that put the two of you on my radar was Spring Awakening. But I wonder if you can talk about that like nature of collaboration that you have with him and why you feel like it's been such a successful collaboration. We met at a, um, we're both Buddhists. So we both um, chant Nami Horengeki. We're both members of the Soka Gakkai. And he had moved to New York and I was like the arts leader of New York at that time. And someone said, you know, you should really call Duncan Sheik. He's moved to New York and let him know about the arts division. And I was like, he doesn't, you know, if you want, he'll find out. And I was like, no, you should call him. So I, so I just called him. And left a message, and I didn't particularly expect to hear back from him. That was kind of when he was, it was after he'd released his second album, Humming. And um, he was touring a lot. And um, he called me back immediately and was like, oh, yes, can you come down to my house and chant? And it was January 2nd, 1999, I remember. And we just had this phenomenal meeting. It was like a life-altering, like my life turned a mystic corner while meeting him. And we, we were there together for like four or five hours. And at that time, I was doing a play down at here. It's called Umbridge. I was working at the time with Laurie Anderson on a musical version of The Tempest, Shakespeare's Tempest in London. And Duncan thought that was very cool. And then he said to me, Is there any, are there any songs in this play? And I said, oh, there, there's these two songs, but, you know, there's just these little, oh, it was just one. There's this one song, but it's just this little tune I wrote. It's not anything. He said, could I see the lyric? And so I went home that night. This is the era of fax machines. I faxed him the lyric. And he called me the next day and said, I wrote, 
I have a song for you. And I said, I'm leaving for London. He was like, meet me for lunch. And so I met him and he handed me a CD and he had just set verbatim the lyrics I'd given him. And of course, it was way better than the tune I had. It was, wasn't even comparable. So I left for London and it was so beautiful, the song. And I came back and it was Robbie Sedgwick, Kira's brother, who was playing the lead in the show. And I came back, he said, we've got to get this, we've got to get a song for the show. There's this amazing, he started talking about a Dylan song. And I said, well, I wrote a song with Dr. Cheek. And he said, well, we need an up-tempo song. And I just said, well, maybe I could write an up-tempo lyric. But I never aspired to write lyrics. Hmm. So I went home and wrote a lyric. And Duncan was at Sundance and I faxed it to him at Sundance. And he said it, like, again, verbatim. And then, like, I got this itch. And so I like, started sending him lyrics. And I sent him another three or four, like, right away. I mean, like you know, one at a time, but, and he was setting them. I never anticipated being a songwriter. And I don't think he ever thought of writing songs for anyone but himself with anyone but himself. And I, um, suddenly we had these like five or six songs and they were great. And he said, we should do an album together. And we did, it was this album called Phantom Moon. That was our first songs. And um, then he came to see the show here. And I said, we should do a piece of theater together. And he made a face and he said, musical theater. <laughs> and I said, um, well, we could do something cool, you know? And he said, he says, these are my words for it. So he's probably right. But what he said in essence was, I, if I were to work on a musical, I want to do something where the music was relevant to the culture at large. And the moment he said it, whatever version of that he said, I just thought of Spring Awakening. I just thought, whoa, <laughs> Spring Awakening is perfect. Because the play, you know, sometimes you have these, maybe it's because I chant, but I have this, I have these, you know, intu I trust my intuitions and I have these intuitions. And it was just, that was like that. And I thought the play is so full of the unheard cries, these arias really of yearning from all these young people. I thought the place that young people for generations have found release from an expression of those same cries was rock music. So it seemed like a great marriage to me. So that was how it began. It was just like, like that. And then I remember another time he said to me, and by another time, I mean like two days later when we were talking about it. Oh, I like gave him a copy. I gave him a copy of the play of Spring Awakening. I love the play. I did. I've done the play version of the show. Who were you? Hanchen. Such a great part. So I did that three and a half page monologue. That was my audition monologue when I moved to New York. When I left wow. when I came to New York, that was my audition monologue was Hanshin. Yep. I did it at Roy Arias on 43rd Street. Incredible. And it's the masturbation monologue. Of course. And my mom was like there at opening night, like sitting next to my then boyfriend. And it was like, <laughs> <laughs> she had been warned. But anyway, all that to say, I I love the the play is beautiful. And it, so it, it makes sense to me that, I mean, I never would have thought to do that, but it just makes sense why, why it hit you. I remember I was on 72nd Street, so I must have been on a cell phone, even though it was, well, I guess so. I guess in 99, we used them. So I was walking up the block and I was saying, Duncan had said to me like the day before, like I don't, he said, I don't like in plays when someone's talking and then someone's singing and it's kind of arbitrary. And I called him and said, you know, I had this thought, what if the songs were interior monologues? And so, I mean, really, that was where the show was born. And then we started working on it, and I was writing these 
kind of moody, postmodern lyrics that he was setting. And we started writing these songs and I started doing a version of the show. And then I called Michael Mayer, whom I had known. And um, I hadn't spoken to him in years. And he picked up, which was shocking to me because he'd become this gold. It was a landline. And he just like picked up. I thought I better. I loved Michael, but I hadn't talked to him. And he was a, he was at his moment of most golden boy at that moment in his career. And um, and I certainly was not. And I thought I better be quick. And so I just kind of came in. Michael, it's so great to hear from you. You know, I have this idea of doing a musical version of Spring Awakening with, and, with Duncan Cheek. And there was just dead silence. And I was like, Michael? And he said, I can't believe you're saying this to me. He said, I was out with my producer, Peter Manning of Sideman last night, or the night before, Friday night, whatever night he said, it was like in the last day or so. Said, um, and I said to him, you know, my career is going so great, but I'm not doing anything that really challenges me. Why doesn't someone offer me Spring Awakening? <laughs> oh my god the universe <laughs> i know it was just amazing and so then within days we were scheduled to go to michael's house and meet and um duncan was an hour and a half late like we we gave up i, I don't mean any blameful i mean he just was like he, he missed the time and he was working and so Michael and I were already like saying goodbye. It was great to catch up. I, you know, we always loved each other. I'd never known him that well, but, and Duncan showed up. And so it was like, okay, we will talk about this. And then um, Michael said that Annie Hamburger had just become artistic director of La Jolla Plaus. And she had asked him about, he said, I'm about to meet her for lunch, like in two days. And I know she wants to talk about projects. Could I mention this to her? And I was like, absolutely. And he did. And she commissioned it. So I had to do a draft of the show. We had to like write it. I had proposed this to Duncan in, I don't know, March or something and called Michael in June. And we were going to La Jolla in August, late August, beginning of September. And I I know what happened. My agent and Michael both thought it was really cool to try a contemporary version of the show, like to make the characters contemporary because rent was the thing at that time. Mm -hmm. And I did. I wrote a version of it and Michael and I were really excited about it. And at the time, and Annie said, this doesn't work at all. She said, you know, this just doesn't work. You, you, you're not living in a place where information is, she was right. You know, information spread so fast. How can this girl's abortion be, you know, this huge event? Anyway, it just didn't. And so I had to do this draft of the play. I remember like in weeks, like a, a week or two weeks. Like I just, and I, you know, I did it from the, I have it right here. I did it from the German. I, this was not planned either. This just happens to be here, my German version. For the listeners, he just picked up a copy of Spring Awakening that was just sitting right next to him. I wish you could have seen it. Well, it's the German version. I went to the German bookstore. Got it. Wow. Yeah. Do you read German? Yeah. So I did the version from the German. Wow. Yeah. So um, that was the beginning of it. That's what, I mean, I could tell a million stories because of a million years, but that was the launching of the story. So exciting. So cool. And I guess my next question, piggybacking off, you know, the podcast was born because I want to give actors more information about what happens yeah. on the other side of the table, how this business actually works. I don't think a lot of training programs are giving actors the, you know, the entrepreneurial business classes that, that they need to go out into the yeah. business. 
what's so what's cool to me about Spring Awakening was, and you you talked about Rent earlier. It was very much like Rent in that it launched the careers of some yeah. of these huge stars that that we know today. And you know, I'm just wondering if there's anything that you remember about talking about the audition room is is mm-hmm. something that I like to talk about, and maybe we'll talk about it more a little bit later. But mm-hmm. what was the audition process like in finding those people? you know, who it really started their careers. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is they're probably about many of these people, Leah Michelle, Jonathan Groff, Skyler, you know, John Gallagher, like there's a star quality, right? That you just can't put your finger on it. There's just this something about them. Jeff Calhoun was talking on an earlier podcast about auditioning Sutton Foster, you know, and he was just like, it's just this, this other thing that you can't describe. But I just wonder, you know, is there anything tangible that you remember about those auditions or those people that, that can be described or maybe that can be described to also help people who are maybe coming into audition for new material or, or just, um, first of all, I remember the auditions vividly. I remember them in detail. I mean, Leah's audition, Leah and I still talk about it. She remembers what she wore. The, the, and I remember what it looked like, but she came in, she was 14. And in the original German play, the girl is 14. And she read the beatings. Well, first of all, she sang, I don't know how to love him. And she was this little girl. I mean, she wasn't little, she was 14 and she was, her body was maturing, but she was, it was breathtaking. And that voice, it was just like this. And then, she read the scene she read was when she hands Melchior the switch and asks him to beat her. Wow. And it was so arresting to hear a young girl saying those words. Leah was, you know, Jonathan said something to me once and it was true. He said, all the years we did this show, Leah never missed a note. She never missed a word. Leah's that way. Leah is, Leah gets the dialogue exactly as you've written it. Leah gets the notes exactly as you've written them. And she was that way at 14. Michael was even questioning, can we do this with somebody so young? Is it too disturbing? But she was a star. You know, I remember in the final cast, I'm jumping over years now. She was part of it for like seven years. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that we didn't audition other people because we did. And Michael and I always thought, I remember Michael saying to me, she has star quality. And she does. She -hmm. did. She walked out and took took a stand on a chair and it was a huge theatrical event. It was just a girl taking a stand on a chair, you know, and the entire theater couldn't breathe. I mean, I would tell you something um, for auditioners. It's a very writerly thing to say, but, you know, I work in movies and TV and um, theater and um, in theater and TV, the writer really matters, like what they say. Mm-hmm. And I think now I'm going more general and we can come back to Spring Awakening, but I had an idea of this because of Lily's audition. But I will say the more general point is that actors come in a lot and they are really playing the underneath of the scene, which, of course, you want them to play. They're playing with their partner, a scene partner, which is rarer, or the reader. They're kind of playing what's and they're paraphrasing the lines to get the emotion. And it's totally off-putting. It's um, for a writer who's worked on something for, you know, years. It's hard. It's not that I don't know that the underneath is, is as important as anything. I wouldn't say it's more important, but I can't pay attention to it because I'm so thrown by the fact that they're paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. So I, 
and this happens a lot. And I think Jim Carnahan once said to me that he thinks every writer feels this, that I think it's great to memorize, but you better be word perfect. Because if not, I think it's better to hold the pages. Mm-hmm. I really do. Because I, the writer matters. And you, th- mm-hmm. you just lose the writer's attention and his championing you. And I'll give an example of that. And it's Lily Cooper. She was, that was a very contested casting of Marta. There were a number of girls who had, you know, you're casting a musical. There are a lot of voices at the table. So there are, we had two lead producers. We had an artistic director. We had Michael, who's the director. We had the composer. We had the music director, you know, and I, like all these people are part of this. Girl after girl came in. I'm calling girls, women, young woman after young woman came in. And they were singing the dark I know well. And they were missing the shift in the lyric from this. I'm going to treat you right. I'm going to teach you right. Lily got it, not only just got it right. And she was 15, by the way. But she inflected it for what it meant differently. For the dad to be saying to his daughter when he's coming on, coming into her room, I'm going to teach, I'm going to treat you right. I'm going to teach you right. And it, it's just something I remember. I remember when she sang Teach You, it went up my spine. I wasn't even expecting it from the others. I don't think about it. By the way, I'm not sitting there thinking my words are so precious. I don't think they are. I'm not. But I know them all by heart. So when you say them incorrectly, it throws me. And Lily, I became, her, first of all, I loved her and we all loved her. So I don't mean to say that. But I also became a real advocate at the table. And part of it was that. And it's not that I thought, oh, she'll get my words right. You assume everyone will. Mm-hmm. It's just that you, you, it, catch, it holds your attention in a way. So I remember Lily's audition. I remember Jonathan's audition. He sang Left Behind. So, so over the years, we accrued people. And then we had for the Off-Broadway, there were also like John Gallagher we had met when we were doing the concert at Lincoln Center. So he had kind of become our Moritz. He had to audition again. But we had seen him and we knew we loved him. And when he first auditioned, we thought there was no way he could sing it. But we loved his acting so much. We cast him. Then he became, you know, Rossi has a band. You know, it's like he, it's Spring Awakening opened this part of him. Um, Skyler, I remember Skyler's audition. He was at NYU. And then we, he, he did the, no, he's in high school. He was in high school when he, in Long Island when he did the Lincoln Center concert with us. And then when we had a, we lost someone in our final workshop of Spring Awakening before we did a last workshop at Baruch College before we did the Atlantic. We lost someone and we called Skylar and he had begun NYU. It was his freshman year at NYU. In fact, I had two conversations with his dad saying, I think this would be really great for Skylar and I understand. And, you know, I know what it is to be a concerned dad. And, you know, I had a concerned dad and I am a dad. And, you know, but I'm telling you, I think this is worth trying. You know, and I mean, it worked out. What can I say? You know, not because of me. I'm just saying, you know, Skylar, I I remember their auditions. I remember Jonathan. So Jonathan was more in that next to last set, which was the off-Broadway set, which was cast Mm -hmm. before the Baruch workshop. And Jonathan sang Left Behind. And I cried. I think probably I was not the only one. And he couldn't hit the notes at that time. So this is going to sound directly contradictory to what I just said. He knew it beautifully, but um, there were questions about whether or not he could sing the role, but he was so ripe for the role. And he had such magnetic matinee idol chemistry with Leah that there was no way we were not going to cast him, despite 
real concerns of the music department that he, and I'm not talking about the quality of his voice, I'm talking about his range. Mm-hmm. is a rangy role. Mm-hmm. Cause he has a lot of, you know, falsetto. That's it's important to hear. Cause sometimes, you know, when I get auditions for things, especially new material, sometimes it's like, that's a high tenor. Like I'm a baritone. I can sing a G, you know, but my agents or people will be like, well, just go in, go in and just do it. And I think that's just a great story. You have like, to go in. You have yeah. To go in. Oh, I, do. I think so. In this case, our music director really said definitively she could not sing well. And it was like, well, we'll see. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have to adjust the role. For, I rewrote the role of Melchior for Jonathan, but we didn't adjust the music particularly. There were qualities Jonathan had and qualities he didn't have in Melchior as I'd written him. And I, I did. He is Melchior. So I'm, you know, and like I'm not writing the abstract. He's Melchior. So right. I wanted him to score. I wanted the play to score. So I, I did. Maybe I did it for others too, but most pronouncedly with Jonathan. Yeah. I imagine it also makes your job a little easier when you find someone that just is the role. Yeah, but he he was, but he wasn't. That's what I mean. I had to rewrite it for him. Yeah. So it fit. Mm-hmm. It's easier to have a voice to write for, but it was. it's easier when someone just fits. Yeah. You know, what you're saying is, yeah, but that wasn't the, entirely the case with it. That was the case with John Gallagher, for example. Yeah. With, with just the role as written. With Jonathan Groff, he had such enormous sincerity and such heart. And he was less the kind of ironical intellectual, though he has those qualities and they remain a big part of the role, but we played to his strengths. Right. You know, in the, in the character. This is all like amazing. And so um, it's so good to hear because it was, you know, you kind of think like, oh, I have to be perfect for this and I have to be what it, you know, exactly, you know, what the material is and I have to transform myself into what, you know, whatever I think they're looking for. But this was an audition process that like, massively launched these careers because, you know, they would have probably become stars, I guess, without Spring Awakening, maybe. I don't know. I mean, they might have, but but I think it, it there is something about the actor and the role. Yeah. You know what I mean? That launches careers. Yeah, absolutely. It's the right role at the right time. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I think that you have to know coming in, I mean, maybe a lot of people say this, but that everyone there wants you to be amazing. Like the people on the other side of the table are just praying you'll be good. Mm-hmm. Just praying you'll be right. Every person who comes in is like another lifeline for the creative team. It's like, show us our show. You know, it's not, people aren't, I'm sure there are people who are, but the teams I've been on are not sitting there saying, so show me. And you come in, it's like, please God, nail it. Mm-hmm. And I think you want to fall in love with you. Yeah. I think that's part of what it is. Yeah. Well, you're, you know, not only are you going to be spending a lot of time with them in in the audition, you know, in the rehearsal room, and the audience also is going to have to want to spend time with you night after night, too. So it's, there's kind of that other quality that kind of can't be maybe learned, except what I'm learning right now, it's about letting that, you know, the best, those qualities of yourself come out in the audition room. Which I think a lot of schools don't teach or don't or are, you know, are like, oh, it's all about the technique and it's about the scene and, you know, and it is. But there's so much about the audition, about you just coming into the room and being a, like the kind of person that you are and and then how that translates into into the scene or into the song or, you know, whatever you're doing. I, you know, as a playwright, the longevity of plays is because actors want to play the roles. 
So if I look to playwrights who matter to me, Shakespeare, Chekhov, it's all about having created these roles. The reason that Chekhov is, continues to be produced is that actors want to perform those roles. Absolutely. It's the same thing with Shakespeare. Roles that allow this incredible range of the person. And so for me, that's what I want to see in someone auditions. So I want them to show me parts of the role I didn't know about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not going back on what I said. I want to hear the music of the lines. Mm-hmm. It's like primary for me. It's like um, Sarah Benson always says to me, always says when we're working together, you need actors who speak satyr. So it's just like, you know, I'm sure I'm, all playwrights may feel, you know, like have an idiosyncratic way of writing. I want people, to, I want to hear that they have that music. And, I, and they, you know, you want them to look right and there's all that. But people show you the characters too. Yeah. They show you themselves and then you're writing something that's big enough for them. Yeah. It's a great thing as a writer. Steven Spinella really challenged me in great ways with uh, the older man for um, Spring Awakening. He's brilliant. I know. And he, it's not like he challenged me. Like he, um, he came to me about a conversation in the, um, the scene with Melchior's father has with his mother when um, she's, the mother has discovered the letter that Melchior wrote to Bedla. Well, the father's discovered it and he's, he's disclosing it to the mother. And Stephen had this whole conversation with me about it. And, um, but I listen to actors. Mm-hmm. I know that you can't say I, I completely disagree. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause you, you can and often do, but you also can be like, Oh, you're, yeah, that's true. That makes that scene. That makes the character and the scene much more complex and rich. Yeah. I did have that moment with Stephen and it was great. That's not talking about where you cast someone, but it's, it's certainly a reason I would cast him again because I know he would bring that critical mind to what we're working on. You know, that's another big part of it is, you know, once you work with someone, people have their tribes of people that they just mm-hmm. like to work with, that they like to create with. And so that's probably a good example of the kind of people that you like to keep around and, you know, and, and work with and, and stuff like that. Because so much about this business is about networking and communication and, um, yeah. you know, making those relationships, I think. Because like you said, you know, you want to work with people who you like and, and you know, stuff like that. Yeah, and that fall in love with your work and that you fall in love with theirs and you create something that you, you're really invested in together. Mm-hmm. You definitely want actors who are completely committed. I mean, Colton Ryan on um, Alice by Heart, I mean, it's amazing the commitment he brought to the role. and to the, I mean, all the actors did. I'm not saying that. They, they all did. But when people are in, they're in. Mm-hmm. And it makes a huge difference. Yeah. You know what I, mean? I mean, our whole cast, I don't want to single someone out. Heath, Wes, Taylor. We had an amazing cast. But yeah, I think it's true. You find, you find your people. Yeah. Well, I loved Spring Awakening. It was huge for me. Thank you so much for writing it and having those, uh, you know, ideas because it was so huge for so many people and um, just just really exciting. And I think changed a lot of the theater that was produced after. I think a lot of people were got excited about Spring Awakening and I think you're right. What a different audience. Yeah, yeah. It was like it, it to me. It was a marriage of the right creative team, the right actors, the right people at the right time. And it was just really exciting. And also the revival was just very cool. I loved it as well. Yeah. You know, the last thing I want to close with is, um, it's just been interesting to me to hear what people have to say, but if you could tell yourself something about the business, I think primarily when you were in your early mid twenties or when, you know, when you were kind of just starting out, 
What's something that you maybe wish you understood more, less maybe about the artistry of it, but more just about the business for, you know, people who are maybe writers, you know, aspiring writers who are wanting to do, you know, plays and musicals or just for anyone about. Not about writing, but, but about getting their work on. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, I think just in general or just anything you think that comes to mind that was something. And I understand that there's the thing of, you know, we have to learn it in your own time and everything. And but but I just wonder if, if something comes to mind. I mean, I would say to myself that I should go out more. I was I was always I mean, we began this by saying how I barely leave my house in the quarantine. That's my nature. <laughs> I would rather be, you know, with Tolstoy on the floor. Or with, you know, my mentor, I were rewriting and rewriting. And, and my agents would say to me, you've got to go to openings. You've got to go. And I didn't. And I saw people who did, or people who came out of Yale who knew so many people. And I didn't. Like, I came out of a, an academic program in, in literature. So this thing served me. It's not that I have regrets about it. But I do think it's really important to be out and be seen and to just be part of things when people think of you. I do think that's important. And I do think it's important to work on things that are tied to the moment politically, that are tied to the moment socially. I'm not saying you need to do only social conscious theater or political theater. And I understand as an actor, you have less choice over what you're working on. But I do think that the pieces that seem to draw, you know, when we opened Spring Awakening, it was in the height of the exposure of Bush's, you know, lying about the Iraq war. And that first scene was this woman lying to her daughter about sex. And there was the sense of the toll that lying takes on us. Suppression screamed off the stage. And it seems like part of being part of something that gets noticed is part of being something that, yes, has a lasting value, but it's also of the moment. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, um, at least as a writer, no, that's great. Because I think we're all in a time of creation right now and, and, you know, coming up with other things, whether you're a performer, you know, everyone's kind of mm -hmm. coming up with their own, their own projects. So that makes a lot of sense. And there's certainly a lot going on right now for people to draw inspiration from. Yeah, it's a dark time. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> oh my gosh, Stephen, like, I feel like I could keep talking to you for the next five hours. I, I but, um, but for the sake of the podcast and, you know, and our time and everything, I really, I really appreciate your time and you, you know, you doing this and, and so much of everything you said, it's like, I mean, it was just so exciting and so, oh, and so eye opening and what you said about yeah, the word in the great. audition room. So it's all very great. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I, I hope on the other side of this, we get to connect um, in healthier, different, different worlds and, or maybe I'll see you out on the street or something. <laughs> But thank you, thank you, thank you. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown. Ah!